Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. What are the four major tenets of secularism? People that are not Christians, they probably believe these four things. What are they and how can we respond to them? We're going to talk about that in this first segment with my friend Natasha Crane, natashacrane.com. She's written a brand new book. We talked about it a few months ago. It's called Faithfully Different, but we're here at the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, and we wanted to bring Natasha in to talk about this. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Hey, Natasha, before we get into the four tenets of secularism, how did you even get into apologetics, evidence for the faith? How did this happen? Well, a bit of an accident, actually. I started a blog that was about Christian parenting back in 2011, and I just started writing stuff about what we were doing to raise our very young kids at the time to know and love the Lord. I had three kids, three and under, and I kind of wanted some kind of creative outlet in the middle of all that. And so I started writing these articles, and as people started reading the blog and sharing my blog post with their friends, started bringing other people to my site who maybe wouldn't have necessarily been there otherwise, and they started making all kinds of comments about the truth of Christianity. And I was not looking for this kind of conversation because I had no idea how to answer the kinds of things that they were saying. Things like there's no evidence that God exists. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus wasn't a person in history. The mm -hmm. Bible's filled with errors and contradictions. Science has disproven God, all these kinds of things that even though I had been a lifelong Christian, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church my whole life, had absolutely no idea how to respond to these people. And so that sent me into a really intense reading journey where I wanted to just learn everything I could to be able to respond to people. And in the process, I turned around and made my blog a place where I was equipping other Christian parents with an understanding of the kinds of claims that people are making and how to talk to your kids about them. So long story short, eventually that led to me writing three books on apologetics, specifically for parents. And with my latest book with Faithfully Different, it's my first one that's not for parents specifically, it's a general Christian audience, but kind of going the next step from, okay, here's apologetics with how do we know Christianity is true to what does that mean? What mm -hmm. does it mean if Christianity is true for how we engage in culture? And so that's that's where my focus is now. All right, let's talk about those four tenets that secular people tend to believe in our culture. And these are unpacked, ladies and gentlemen, in the book, Faithfully Different. So if you want to go further, you can, but what's the first one? So really fast before the first one, I think at the heart of secularism that everyone needs to understand is that it's an authority based worldview in the self. Mm. So okay, as Christians, our authority obviously is God and we know what God wants, who he is, what's required of us, all of these things through the Bible, the inspired and authoritative word of God. But from a secular worldview perspective, the authority is you. You're the one who gets to decide what's true about reality, what's right and wrong and good and bad. So from that, we can say, okay, how do we recognize those things in culture? How do we see immediately when someone is rooted in this authority of the self? Mm. And so four tenets of secularism, and I talk about the first one is feelings are the ultimate guide. All right. So as Christians, we're looking to God and the Bible is our ultimate guide, but someone coming from a secular worldview perspective is looking just to their own feelings because it's a very subjective thing. If the authority is you on life and the world and reality and morality, 
then of course is all, all you've got are your feelings to mm. guide you. So feelings being the ultimate guide manifests itself in so many different ways. This is how we get follow your heart. That's you know, right. I, I know you talk a lot about this, following your heart and all of those, you know, cute little mugs and pillows that you see in <laughs> stores, follow your heart, you know the way, you be you. All these things are not just cute little sayings that you find on consumer products. These are deeply rooted in a secular worldview. So, Man, if I followed my heart all the time, first of all, I'd be dead already uh, because I want to do things that are going to hurt me and hurt others, but they're going to be fun short term. Think about following your heart, ladies and gentlemen. If you did that, every time you met somebody new, say you're already married, you met somebody new and you really had an affinity for them. If you just followed your heart all the time, that would be disastrous. Okay, so feelings are number one. That's the first tenet of secularism. What's number two? So number two, we have to ask ourselves, okay, feelings are your guide. Where are they guiding you to? And that second tenet is happiness. Happiness, happiness. is okay. the ultimate goal in secularism. And you can justify all kinds of things if happiness is your goal. And this is what we see right now with abortion. So much in culture, we see so many women standing up and saying, hey, if I didn't have an abortion, I wouldn't be where I am today I am in my happy. career. Be happy. I'm yeah. happy. And when people say they're happy, it's almost like the mic drop as if they're saying, so of course you should understand this, you mm -hmm. know, this is the right thing for me because my feelings led me here and now I feel great and I'm at a place of happiness. And it makes perfect sense from an authority rooted in the self perspective, of course, because all you have are your subjective feelings leading you to subjective happiness. It's all about you. So it's feelings, then happiness. What's the third tenet of secularism? So if your feelings are guiding you and they're guiding you to happiness and no one can tell you how you feel or what makes you happy, then the third tenet becomes judging is the ultimate sin. Oh, you can't judge that. You can't judge that. Are you, you judging me for judging? Stop yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> no one can come into this and tell you anything because you're the authority on yourself. Uh -huh. So if you as a Christian are coming along, and it, this is important to understand, I think, as Christians, if you're coming along and trying to say that there's some kind of a should or shouldn't that applies to someone else's life, they're going to recoil at that because they're the authority. Who are you to say anything? You Christian who are claiming that there's an authority that is higher than myself. So of course people are going to take offense at that. They're going to say, there's no way that you can judge me or that you should judge mm. me. And so judging is the ultimate sin for a secular And culture. notice they are judging you for judging. It's self-defeating to say you ought not make judgments as we've spoken quite a bit on this program. And no, Jesus didn't say don't make judgments. He said, judge not lest you be judged. He's actually telling you to take the speck out of her brother's eye, out of your brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. Okay, so we got, we got feelings, happiness. We're not to judge. What's number four? So number four leaves us with a general question about, well, what about God? Does God have any place in a secular mm. worldview? Well, kind of. God is the ultimate guess not guest. Some people have heard me say guest. Okay. <laughs> He's the ultimate guest. We don't other, know if he exists. In, yeah. other words, right. in other words, if you want to believe that there's some kind of higher being out mm -hmm. there, some kind of power, maybe some even a creator. Some kind of Oprah guy. Yeah. If, okay. if there's somebody out there, th that's great. A lot of times people think secularism is synonymous with atheism, but it's not. Mm -hmm. The vast majority, 90% of Americans believe in something that's out there. The problem is they think that there's no way that anyone has any objective basis for confidence in the existence of God or who that God is. The best it can ever be is a guess. And they're comfortable with that because if we're all just guessing and it's all your opinion, the authority remains on you, it's the authority of the self, and God, if he exists, is in the distance and he's happy to leave you to your own self. So Natasha, what would you say to somebody, a friend of yours, a family member, who lives their lives by these four tenets and uh, you're trying to reach them and they say, well, I, 
I just did this because it made me happy. How would you respond? How would you interact with them? What would you say? Well, a lot will depend on the person, obviously, yeah. but I think that a lot of times it's so self-defeating because of the the conscience that we all have. And as Christians, we know that everyone has this knowledge of God and that everyone is, if you don't believe that there's a God out there, you're actually suppressing the truth. So I think that as Christians, we can speak into that by saying, well, what do you think? Would it make, if I, it made me happy to have a slave, for example, because that's something that's very much in the moral consciousness of our culture today. If it made me happy, would that be the right thing to do? Mm. The vast majority of people are going to say, no, of course not. That's horrible because our culture makes all kinds of moral judgments all the time and not right. just from a, well, this is right for me, but they're claiming some kind of objective morality that mm. applies to all people, even though they have no objective basis for doing that. So we can turn that around and we can give examples that we know they're going to say, well, no, that's not okay. You know, if, if it makes me happy to rape someone, is that okay? And so you start to help them realize that the logic is failing on itself. So then if that's the case, how do we define what is objectively right or wrong? How, what's our basis for mm, that? Mm. And start to talk about how happiness can't be our guide because it's subjective and there are things we all recognize are objectively wrong, whether they make us happy or not. Yeah, and the truth is we don't really define right and wrong. We discover right and wrong because there's a standard outside of ourselves. Now, if you want to hear more about this, you need to join the Cross-Examined Community because we're going to continue this conversation with Natasha on the Cross-Examined Community. If you don't know what that is, go to crossexamined.org. You'll see Cross-Examined Community at the top. But we're going to have Elisa Childers on here just shortly in the next segment. Before we do, Natasha, tell people your website, where they can find you. Yeah, it's natashacrane.com and Crane is spelled C-R-A-I-N. C-R-A-I-N. Great stuff up there. Get the book Faithfully Different to go further on this. Also, check out Natasha's podcast. She has a podcast, NatashaCrane.com. Check it out there. And we're back in just two minutes with Elisa Childers. Don't go anywhere. I'm Frank Turk. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Our guest in this segment is the great Elisa Childers, ladies and gentlemen, elisachilders.com. You know Elisa, you're probably, everybody's listening to Elisa's podcast, and she's been on this podcast before, this radio program before. Uh, and she's with me right now at the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. Elisa was a student here maybe five or six years ago. Now she's one of our instructors, and uh, she's doing a wonderful uh, job in what she does. Elisa, how are you? I'm good. It was 2016. It was that 2016. Was yeah. And now you are a star in the apologetics world, if you if there are such things. I don't, yeah. I don't know <laughs> if there are. Pool. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. You know, just in the last segment, we had Natasha Crane sitting where you are right now, and Natasha was talking about the four tenets of secularism, number one is, is that people are governed by their feelings, to number two, give them happiness, to number three says, for that reason, you can't judge me, judging's off limits, and you know, God is the ultimate guess. Now, you're doing such great work dealing with deconstruction, people are leaving the faith, and you're also dealing with the people who are, say, they're progressive Christians. Do you see these four tenets at work in that community, Elisa? I do. In fact, when I read Natasha's book and I saw those laid out just like that, it was just like this light bulb went on because it's exactly what I see in the deconstruction and in the progressive Christianity movement. In fact, uh, I, I think uh, in Natasha's book, she defines deconstruction better than anyone else. And I actually used it in my presentation this oh, morning. Oh, really? Because she says it's, it's really, deconstruction doesn't necessarily lead to a deconversion, 
But it is a deconversion of sorts because it's a deconversion from the authority of Scripture, basically, to the authority of the self. Mm. And I think that in my observations of studying the movement and progressive Christianity, which are not exactly the same, but there's a lot of overlap, uh, that is the primary uh, place that you you have your authority for what you feel, for what you believe, how you're going to live your life, what you think is right or wrong. It all comes from this shift from what's true or false to what your internal moral compass tells you is helpful or harmful or oppressive or liberating. And so the language shifts from true false language to more, um, well, frankly, feelings-based. So yeah, mm. governed by your feelings would be the, pr the primary starting place. Why is that dangerous? Well, I think it's dangerous because as Christians, we know that we have a sin nature. And I think almost every worldview can, can be kind of drilled down to how you answer the question, are you a sinner or are you basically good? Mm. Because if you're basically good, then it would make sense to be governed by your feelings because you would probably feel the right things and you could follow your instincts toward what might be uh, truthful or might be something that reflects reality. But as Christians, we know that that internal moral compass is broken. It's distorted by sin. And so that's something that needs to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're on a lifelong sanctification process to become more and more like Christ. But if we know that inherently by nature, we are fallen people, that we are sinners, then we can't always trust that internal moral compass to lead us toward truth. And so often our internal feelings and preferences are not only uh, not in line with truth, but they're actually opposed to truth. And I tell a story in my book because it's like my son, when I took him to the dentist, when he was a lot younger, and I couldn't really help him understand what was happening. But if he just went by his feelings, I'm sure he would have gotten out of the chair mm -hmm. and not had the cavity drilled. Mm -hmm. But I, as his mom, I have more information. I know that that is a necessary discomfort for the greater good because it could lead to further health problems if we don't deal with it, cause him more pain later. But he doesn't know that because he doesn't have all the information. And so it's kind of like that with God, like how much more information does he have? And so that's why as Christians, we submit to his revealed word, the Bible. Hmm. Now, you've been dealing in this progressive Christianity world for a while because you almost became a progressive Christian, and we've talked about that on previous shows, but your book, Another Gospel, goes into that uh, quite a bit and how you sort of came out of that. Uh, now, you're, you're writing a couple of new books that are coming out I guess one's... One's when? coming in on October 18th. That what? one's already written. That's okay. called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Isn't that great? Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Okay, that's coming out in October. We're going to have to do a whole show on that, Alisa. Yes. Okay, what is that covering basically in there? So in it's sort of an extension of another gospel in that I'm dealing with more of the Christian-ish self-help gurus, mm -hmm. people like uh, Rachel Hollis, Glennon Doyle. We've talked about all these people on your show as well, uh -huh. and uh, Jen Hatmaker, and yeah. kind of the self-help philosophy that they're promoting. So we talk about different slogans, like you should put yourself first, uh -huh. and you're in charge of your own destiny, and you only live once. Wait, and, wait, all these are moral statements. By yeah. what standard are these people making these statements? Well, I, I guess they don't think that deeply about these things. I yeah, guess. I, I don't, I don't yeah. know because it's, it's again, it's, but it's like Natasha talks about. It's that shift from lining up your beliefs with reality to lining them up with what your inner internal moral compass is telling you. So it's governed by your feelings. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's the main way people are deciding truth these days or what they think is true. Now, I think you have mentioned this before. I've certainly noticed it, but you're much more an expert in this deconversion area than I am. Seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that almost every one of these deconversions has, is at least partially, maybe not totally, but at least partially motivated by a rejection of the Christian sexual ethic. Do you find that? Uh, 100%. I've okay. never heard a deconstruction story that wasn't at least heading in that direction. And, and that doesn't that doesn't mean that everybody who deconstructs it, you know, struggles with their sexuality. Right. But what, what people have to understand about deconstruction, because it's not based on the authority of the Bible, it's very postmodern. Mm. So think about it this way. If, if someone, if you don't believe objective truth can be known, even if you think it exists, but it just, it can't be known, then when people come around like Christians saying that they know what's objectively true, especially about morality, sexuality, uh, and about religion, then because you don't think that's even possible to know those things, then there's going to be a suspicion over the claim that they're making. So this is why in the deconstruction movement, I think in culture at large, truth claims about those things are viewed as power grabs. So mm. people assume if you're, if you're saying that people should behave in a certain way uh, sexually, then you're probably just trying to control people or you're trying to prop up some institution of power. And so uh, those truth claims are met with a deep level of suspicion. And it's, it's all based on determining at the outset that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is oppressive or that it's harmful okay, to people. Okay, let me stop there. Why, let's just say for the sake of argument that the Bible's sexual ethic is oppressive, for the sake of argument, why is that morally wrong if we can't know moral categories? If they're saying that, there is no objective truth or we can't know objective truth. Don't they think it's objectively true that the Bible is immoral? Well, this is why your ministry is so important because <laughs> well. you constantly point out the hypocrisy mm -hmm. in those kinds of claims. And I think you're right. Uh, I think that the one thing I've observed, it's like the the intolerance of tolerance mm -hmm. that our friend Greg Kogel talks about. It's the hypocrisy of saying that, you know, you're definitely wrong on your morality and I'm right, but they're doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And so, again, at least we have a standard by which to justify what we think is right and wrong. And in, in that case, it just, it really, I, I get pushback for this, but I think it's true, is that it just ebbs and flows with culture in those movements. Mm -hmm. it, it's constantly changing. I, I already, I wrote another gospel. It came out two years ago. I already want to update it with two or three new chapters because of how much the movement has progressed and changed and morphed and taken on different emphases. And and, and, and what direction has it gone now? Uh, well, just more toward culture morally. So, uh, for example, five years ago, uh, when I was first really intensely studying the progressive Christianity movement, most progressive Christians were pro-life. Mm. Uh, they were kind of, you know, maybe pointing out what they saw as hypocrisy in the pro-life movement, but they were against abortion. Uh, but with the overturning of Roe v. Wade that we just saw, I saw almost universal mourning over the uh, oppression of women and the rejection of women's really? rights. Really? From, from who? Who would from be an example? progressive Christians, mostly. Yeah. Like, for example, Jen Hatmaker is an example. Oh, yeah. Um, used to be pro-life, and then she posted after Roe v. Wade, like, you know, I'm ter she posted that she's terrified for the women in her life because of this ruling. So I've seen a massive shift toward 
what they call reproductive rights, uh-huh. right? The pro-abortion position. Rights. Where are they getting rights from, ladies right. and gentlemen? I <laughs> well, mean, that's the that's yeah. the switch of language to yeah. turn it into a positive. Yeah. But uh, and then of course the largely well, not largely. I mean, I would say the one hundred percent universal acceptance of not just homosexuality mm-hmm. and a rejection of biblical sexual ethics, but an acceptance and promotion of radical gender gender theory that we see. See, this is why. I have consternation with even calling them progressive Christians. Number one, they're not progressing because they're moving away from the truth. And number two, they're not Christians if they're disagreeing with Jesus. Yet they call themselves progressive Christians, and we're using that as a term of convenience. But they're not Christians if they're rejecting the teachings of Jesus, and that's what they're doing. And it seems it's motivated by what we started with, feelings, happiness, not judging, and yet they're making judgments all over the place. So how do you engage such people who might be open to listening, Elisa. Mm. I, I know a lot of them are not open to listening, but if they are open to listening to the traditional orthodox common sense view of Christianity, how do you, how do you engage them? What do you do? What do you ask them? So I think it would, it requires a little diagnosis. Uh-huh. I think first what a lot of people are in a process called deconstruction before they discover progressive Christianity mm-hmm. or it, that can happen simultaneously if someone you love in your life is in deconstruction, um, there's likely a lot of wounds there from mm. the church or, or experiences that they've had. So what I tell people is it's kind of like how we approach the problem of evil. There's an intellectual answer. Good. And then there's a pastoral answer. Good. And the pastoral yeah. answer for the person in deconstruction is that because of the decision they've already made that you're not a safe person because it's all about helpful, harmful, oppressive, or mm. liberating. Mm. So they've already decided Christian beliefs are oppressive and harmful. So any conservative Christian is not a safe person. So if there's someone in your life in deconstruction, you have a very, very short window of opportunity to just stay in their life. And that's not going to be the time. I, I hate to say this is not the time to pull out your tactic. It's just not the time to try to correct their theology or point that you just cry with those who cry. You, you, uh, of course, you know, in truth, if there's perceived abuse, that isn't real abuse, because a lot of times doctrine is considered abusive. So, you know, Mm. you have to live in truth and not live by lies, but um, just stay in their life, show them love, try to establish yourself as a safe person for them. And then maybe down the road a little bit, you can start pointing them toward truth. But if it's a progressive Christian and they're open, I would point them to Jesus. Mm. I would just ask them a question like, well, what do you think about what Jesus taught about the Old Testament scriptures? Mm -hmm. And then, and then don't give them the answer, let them answer. Because a lot of times, Um, I've had these conversations. They don't know what Jesus has said about the scripture or they haven't thought about that question before. And that can be Mm. a really good thought provoking way to lead them toward the truth of it. For those of you that want to hear more, and I know you do, you need to go to elisachilders.com and check out her podcast and also join the cross-examined community because we're going to continue this conversation on the cross-examined community. If you don't know what that is, it's a private community. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on cross-examined community. You can just sign up there. Elisa, it's always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much. And it's great having Elisa as a CIA instructor as well. So don't go anywhere. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes. I'm Frank Turek. See you in two. Coming to you from the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm with the great Richard G. Howe, Dr. Richard G. Howe, who has been a CIA instructor since the beginning. Since the beginning. 2008, this is the 15th annual, Richard, and 
You teach at Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu, a great place to even audit courses. If you don't want to commit, if you want to be non-committal, you can take a, a course. And you teach logic, too, don't you? I, no, not anymore. You used to. Yes, I yeah. think I, I maybe gotten irrational on that. It <laughs> took me out of the logic class. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you're teaching. What are you teaching at SES now? So I teach, the, the categories are philosophy and apologetics, but mm -hmm. I teach people, it's sort of philosophy light in that I teach the philosophy courses for the apologetics degree because right. we actually have a philosophy degree. All right. So these sort of undiluted stuff, they, they lateral off to others, except for some of the PhD courses I get to do full or, you know, full on philosophy. So that keeps scratching that now, itch for me. Now you got some great stuff at your website, Richard G. Howe, H-O-W-E. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. Well, I'm not a web developer. I have to I know. warn everybody, but I think all the links work. So. All the links work. The downloads are there. It's great stuff. You know, we were just talking to first to Natasha Crane and then Elisa Childers, and we were talking a little bit about progressive Christianity, which isn't really progressive or Christian at all, but these are people that are saying that Christianity isn't true or the Bible isn't true or uh, feelings and happiness are my guide and we ought not judge. And we've noticed that, first of all, a lot of people have made logical errors when they say certain things. Mm -hmm. And there are two kinds of fallacies out there. There's formal fallacies and informal. What's a, what's a formal fallacy? So formal fallacies basically going to be a mistake that is made that is to do with the form or structure of the argument. Mm -hmm. In fact, you could analyze the form of an argument by just variables. If P, then Q, P, therefore Q, mm -hmm. irrespective of what the variables mean. Mm -hmm. Whereas informal fallacies are going to have to do more with content and context. Okay. So they don't, they're not really hard and fast. One, something might be an informal fallacy in one context and not in another. But with a formal, it's always going to be either uh, valid or invalid or right and wrong in terms of the form, irrespective of the content or context. And there's a book that our mentor, Dr. Norman Geiser, wrote a number of years ago called Come Let Us Reason. It's a book on logic that folks out there want to really get into it. And you should yes. really learn about logic and how to think properly because so many of the problems that we can get ourselves into are because of bad thinking. Absolutely. We start believing false principles. That yeah, can be very subtle. Right. Especially the informal ones, but even the formal ones, too, in some respects, but the informal ones especially. What kind, of, what kind of mistakes do you see people making out there, uh, say, informal fallacy mistakes? Well, first of all, what would be an example of an informal fallacy? And give us a... Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think sometimes the, the mistakes they make are innocent. That is, yeah. to say, they may not necessarily mean to, but I think uh -huh. in some contexts it is nefarious uh -huh. in terms of the intention. Okay. All right. But one, for example, would be the straw man fallacy. Okay. The idea of a straw man is this, that if you and I were going to have a, a fight, uh -huh. well, you would kill me pretty much in the first minute. <laughs> but suppose I made a uh, straw man that looked like you, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really you, and then I beat up that straw man and then tried to pass that off with me beating you up. Mm -hmm. Well, by parallel, straw man fallacy is when you misrepresent someone's true argument or true point of view and then refute that that imitation, that straw man in his place, and pass that off as if I've actually answered your original argument. So mm. probably one of the most irritating and common is how often atheists will characterize what they think is our argument for God's existence, but they'll say it this way, everything has a cause of its existence. Mm. And then they'll go, well, if everything has a cause of its existence— and, the, and they're saying, and the Christians think within the universe then has a cause, and that cause is God. But if everything has a cause, then God must have a cause. Mm. So therefore, it doesn't really get you. And, and it's amazing how many, not only just 
amateur or lay kind of uh, uh, atheists do this, but professional philosophers actually state the argument that way, despite the fact that there has never been a Christian philosopher or apologist who's ever said everything needs a cause. We might say everything that begins to exist needs right. a cause, like the Kalam argument, and then we would say God didn't begin to exist. Or we might say every contingent being, whatever that ends up meaning, and say the universe is, is contingent and God is not. So we're never making this, this sort of juvenile blunder. Now some atheists are starting to uh, recognize that and trying to disabuse their fellow atheists of this straw man fallacy. Yeah, I've heard people say we ought to steel man other people's arguments, meaning let's make them as strong as possible, maybe even stronger than they are. And Dr. Norman Geiser, our mutual mentor, was very good at that. He would explain the other person's position, I think, better than they could. And then he would refute <laughs> it. Then he would refute <laughs> right. it. Right. Right. And then so you you don't leave yourself open for being pointed out, hey, that's not even what we said. And right. then you've lost that opportunity to really make some points about the truth because you got the thing wrong. Sometimes people may do it innocently, but sometimes it's a dereliction of people their responsibility to try to understand the opposing point of view as much as you can from the original sources of people that make those opposing points of view. Mm -mm. Uh, you mentioned uh, before, when we were talking, before we went on the air, something known as a category mistake in logic. What's a category mistake? Right. So, in effect, a category mistake is when you try to make some point and, the, and you're applying elements that don't apply to that kind of point. Like, for example, it would be something like if somebody said, well, what time is it on the sun? <laughs> and you go, well, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, what time is it in Cincinnati? But if you exchange yeah. Cincinnati for the sun, that doesn't make sense because the category of time doesn't apply to the sun since what we mean by what time is it is some kind of spot on the surface of the earth with respect to the sun. Right. So you can't have what time is it on the sun. So this will very often happen where people try to say, like, for example, I'll give an example in my talk where they'll say, well, um, did God create the universe? Yes. Well, did he create time and space? Yes. Well, where did he create the universe then? Mm. Since there wasn't any space, you go, that's a category mistake. There was, there's no such thing as where before the universe, mm -mm. because what we mean by where space mm. or when mm. spa uh, time is, is comes into existence with the universe. Mm. So they're taking categories of the universe and trying to apply it to a period when there wasn't a universe, namely when God is doing the creation. Another one I've, I've heard, too, is they'll say, well, you believe that the you Christians believe that God created a universe out of nothing. Well, how did God do that? Mm. And often the how question, not H-O-W, not H-O-W-E, <laughs> um, often the how questions are fair, you know, how, how did this happen? How did but very often what a how question is asking is, well, break that down into more fundamental part. How does an engine work and you break it down? Or how does this work or whatever? But when it comes to the doctrine of creation, it's not like God goes through some process and then at the end of that process, there's a universe. Mm -hmm. it's, just a, it's just a creation out of nothing. Now, they might object that that's possible. That's fine. But to ask, but to, to imply somehow that because we can't say how that is, that somehow it can't be, I would argue is a category mistake because there is no mm. how beyond the question that, well, God is omnipotent and he uh, is the cause of the existence of all things outside himself. So that's just what you do when you're substantial existence itself or subsistent existence itself as God is. It seems like the same mistake is made when people say, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? If you keep asking him, how big is the rock? As soon as they say, well, the rock is infinitely big, 
they've jumped into a category mistake because you can't have an infinitely big finite Absolutely. thing. That's right? exact, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, I heard a great, uh, I wouldn't recommend this, but mm-hmm. I heard a great retort to that rhetorically yeah. that's kind of cheating where uh-huh. the, uh, the Christian is asked, well, can God, well, he said, can God do anything? Kind of mm-hmm. setting it up because the Christian is supposed to say, yes, God is omnipotent. And then they come back, can he make a rock? And then if he can, if he can't make the rock, he's not omnipotent. Mm-hmm. If he does make a rock, he can't lift it. He's not. But to preempt that, the Christian said, uh, he said, well, can God do anything? He said, there's two things God can't do. He can't lie, and he can't do stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was no way the atheist was going to go, well, can, can God make a rock? Because everybody in the audience goes, well, that's kind of like a, that's actually called a poisoning the wells fallacy. Right. It's another lo- logical. Well, so I, I wouldn't recommend doing it, except it does get a good laugh. Poisoning the well, that's, explain that briefly. What so is it? The, the imagery comes from the fact that if you're, if you're wanting to poison everybody in, a, in, a, in the uh-huh. village, the, the easiest way is just poison the well, and uh-huh. then everyone will go to the well, and everyone that goes to it gets this toxin. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what you can do is try to plant some prejudice in the hearer's mind before your opponent gives his point of view. Right, It'd be like right. saying, well, you got to be a little careful with Richard here. He, he's always argumentative. Well, yeah. now, <laughs> not, I can't say anything without, oh, well, yeah, I guess he's, he's, he pretty, is, he's you know, proven the point. Yeah, so right? I've, I've preempted the, 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 the rhetorically, and it, it wasn't a logical thing formally. It's just this informal kind of rhetorical device. What is the fallacy, because this comes up a lot in our culture, uh, Richard, where people call you names rather than dealing with your argument? Well, you're just hateful, or you're a bigot, or you're... It, they're not dealing with the argument, but it's a fallacy. What, what, what is <laughs> the fallacy? Right. It's called uh, ad hominem. It's one okay. of the few fallacies I'm aware of that actually has retained its Latin name. And so mm-hmm. people will talk about an ad, ad hominem, which means against the person or against mm-hmm. the man. Yeah, so you can impugn someone's character or motives and, and that will turn an audience against that person, irrespective of the fact that you didn't prove his position was false. That, you know, if Satan said two plus two is four, it's still four, no matter what we can say about Satan, because the truth in this regard is going to be an objective, independent fact, mm-hmm. objective of the person saying it. Now, there is a relevance to a person's character in terms of credibility. Mm. So while it might not, for example, if the uh, tobacco industry hired uh, a research firm to do research on how dangerous cigarettes are. And they come out with their findings, cigarettes are not harmful at all. And someone may be suspicious of, of that research. Well, it's, while it's true that just because the tobacco industry hired the research firm, that doesn't make their position false. Mm-hmm. However, it may make their position, you might want to be careful about whether right. you trust it or not. Right. In fact, that's why felons, felony uh, testimony is inadmissible because they've already demonstrated a an unreliable character. So that's fine, but it still remains if, even if they are a felon or even if the uh, tobacco industry hired the research, it doesn't make the point of view false Mm. by itself. You've got to get to the facts and the arguments of the issue itself. So what would you say to somebody who is just throwing out an ad hominem attack? How do you refute that? What do you say? I I guess I would want to deliberately just point out, even if they said, well, you know how he's bald and he's getting older and you know, (laughs) And I go, that's fine, but that has nothing to do with whether what I said was true or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> sort of a, a, a version of this, too, is when someone says, well, if you'd have been born in Tibet, you'd, mm-hmm. be, a, you'd be a Buddhist right. or whatever. And say, well, that, that may be true that I would be a Buddhist, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that just because I was born there that that makes Buddhism true mm. or false. That's an mm-hmm. independent thing. So I always try to get the person, that's actually called a genetic fallacy, which is a, uh, another one that somehow the origin of my belief uh, either proves it true or proves it false. 
But I, I would try to get back, force the person to confront the fact that what is at issue between us in our dispute is some objective fact about reality. Mm. However, either with a direct confrontation, say, well, I might be a jerk, but it doesn't mean that what I say is false. Especially like given a mathematical, mm-hmm. although that's going away now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, mathematics <laughs> Math is racist. That's crazy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So. Thanks so much for being on the show. This is Richard G. Howe, ladies and gentlemen. If you want more, and you should want more from Richard G. Howe, go to ses.edu for Southern Evangelical Seminary. ses.edu. Also go to Richard G. Howe, dot com. Great stuff up there. We're back in just two minutes with Brett Kunkel. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. That's where we are right now near Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm with my friend Brett Kunkel, who has been a CIA instructor all the way from the Since beginning. the beginning of Fif- time. 15 years, brother. Wait, are you serious? It's, it's the 15th annual. Years? Yeah. Wow. Well, I started when I was 20, so I'm, I'm, I'm still young. <laughs> You're dealing with kids a lot. By the way, Brett's uh, website, maventruth.com, maventruth.com. Check it out. Uh, Brett, you're dealing with a lot of young people. You speak to a lot of youth groups. You have your own youth uh, conference that you run for young people. What kind of questions are the young asking right now? Today, mm-hmm. the majority of questions kids are asking have to do with the acronym LGBTQ plus whatever letters you want to add to that. The, I would say when I do a talk and it, it really doesn't matter what I'm talking about, right? I mean, I could be talking about, you know, how to sell property in Arizona and the questions mm-hmm. are going to ask 75% mm-hmm. of the questions are, Hey, uh, what do I do about my gay friend? Or I've got a, a friend who's transitioning you know, I, I'm not sure how to interact with them on this or how do I even think about this? And our kid, now think about it. The, the culture that they're growing up in tells them that if they don't affirm, mm-hmm. they're not loving. And mm-hmm. if they're not loving, the only other option is hate. Right. So you're a hateful bigot or whatever. Mm. And that is the, the cultural narrative and that's the cultural pressure. And so they don't, so I think one thing that we have to do with kids, with, with our Christian kids first is help them to see that you can think that someone is wrong and still love them, mm. right? It's a classical notions of tolerance, which is disappeared from our culture. Uh, you know, pe- people who are challenging Christians on this are no longer asking for tolerance. They're asking for complete and full acceptance and affirmation. Celebration. Yeah, yeah you, yeah, mm. you got to celebrate mm-hmm. this now. Mm-hmm. And so young people have no concept of tolerance, and they're not being taught it in our churches and so what we, I think first thing to do is help them to understand why the, uh, a gay lifestyle is wrong and harmful, how, you know, they're, they're, we're not designed for that kind of thing. And I think we, we have to do way more than because the Bible tells me so. Mm-hmm. I think we can start with the Bible as, you know, but, but, but even that with a young person, you reference the Bible as, you know, you know, saying that homosexuality is wrong, you're going to also have to give them the why of the Bible. Why do they, why should we even think this book is from God? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's that piece of it. Mm. But then we, in a culture where scripture is so undermined, authority, the idea of authority is even so undermined, you're just going to have to spend a lot of time, I think, building the authority of scripture. And one of the ways that we can do that, that I found to be effective with young people is help them to see how reality fits 
the picture that Scripture lays out. So when I talk about, for instance, uh, you know, the gay lifestyle being harmful, I will talk about it and say, hey, one of the problems is that you weren't you weren't designed for this biologically or relationally. And then I will go through not only the scriptural view, right? One man, one woman, Mm -hmm. one lifetime. But you know what? Social science backs this up. Mm -hmm. Reality backs this up. Here's what you find in terms of the the relational health of gay individuals, gay men, and and the number of partners and that kind of thing. And then we'll go into some of the the biological even function, or we'll go into the harm, the physical harm Mm -hmm. that comes from this. And when I, 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 when I see students' eyes light up when they get these other things, and, and I, I know that sounds, maybe for some of us, we're like, well, the Bible's the authority. Absolutely, I agree. Bible's the primary authority. But because of where they're at and the culture that they're growing up in, it's so undermined that we can really help strengthen the authority of Scripture when we bring in these other aspects that are more respected out there in the world to help us strengthen the authority of Scripture and then help them see, yeah, actually Scripture is laying out a picture of reality here that holds true. And when we do that, we, number one, we help strengthen the views of our kids on these things. So I think that's the first thing that we have to do because we have to help them come to strong convictions that, uh, you know, the gay lifestyle is, is sinful and it's harmful. Okay. Now, once they have that view, then you also then help them to see, okay, well, what, what else does Christianity tell us? It tells mm-hmm. us that those gay individuals, your gay friend, your friend who's transitioning, is also made in the image of God. This is what gives them inherent or intrinsic value and worth. Okay, so now you, and you, you build that case for them, and you help them to see how that, you can, you can now view their lifestyle as sinful or immoral or as harmful and yet still love them, care for them, be their friend. But actually a deeper way to love them is to help them see that they're, you know, they're, they're walking off the cliff kind Mm. of thing. And, and that really, I think helps young people uh, with this tension because all they've got this one narrative. And so what you're doing is expanding and giving them the biblical view of how we interact and, and treat these folks and, uh, and love them, even though we think they're wrong. In addition to that, we also have to help our young people realize, hey, at the end of the day, as well as you can argue or be persuasive mm-hmm. on this issue, as much as you love somebody, the culture still might hate you. Oh, sure. Your friend still might get ticked off mm-hmm. at you and actually cancel you mm-hmm. because Jesus told us in John 15, hey, if the world hates you, no, it hated me first. Right. And the world hates you because you're not of this world. Right. So... Those are the kind of things I think we got to do to help the young, uh, young people navigate this culture. We moment. falsely believe that love requires approval. Yeah. And we know that as parents, if we approve of everything our kid wants to do, we're not loving. We have to stand in the way of evil. Yeah. Well, uh, think about that view itself right there. And just set aside mm-hmm. LGBTQ issues. Yeah. Young people growing up with that view, are they going to be equipped to enter into uh, a, a lifelong mm-hmm. marriage Mm-mm. with that view? Or is that going to carry them through the difficult times? Is that going to carry them through the disagreements? No. So even on that level, mm-hmm. we are uh, handicapping our kids right? relationally. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what kind of pushback do you get uh, when you bring up basically what some might call a natural law case, say, against certain mm-hmm. behaviors? It doesn't fit with design. It leads to disease. It leads to problems. 
What kind of pushback do you get? Do you get people saying, yeah, but they were born this way or they have this feeling this way. What do you, what do you say to that? Yeah. You get a number of objections uh-huh. number. You'll get the born this mm-hmm. way objection. And that's again, where we point to the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we point to the, the, even the gay advocates, a guy like Martin Duberman mm-hmm. who founded the gay and lesbian center in New York. And he's, he's a pro gay guy, mm-hmm. but he says, look, there's no scientific evidence that supports yeah. that you're born this way. Right. You point to the twin studies right. on this that show that, yeah, you know, identical twins, you would think who share the same, you know, shared DNA are, are going to, there's going to be a greater likelihood right. of one twin being gay. The other one's going to be gay. And that is not the case. So mm-hmm. you, you, again, you give them that evidence and, uh, and, and just you help, you tell them that they're being lied to. Mm-hmm. And one thing I found is that young people do appreciate honesty, even if sometimes they disagree with it, they, they do appreciate honesty. And sometimes I think what's helpful too, is to narrate for them what you're doing. Mm. I, I say, look, I would love to be able to just say, live your life sure. however you want. Yeah. I don't want conflict. Right. I, I just want to affirm you because I care about you. Yeah. But that, that, that doesn't really love them the way they need to be loved. That'd be the easy way out. What we find in the real world is that people who love us deeply love us, like our parents. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, they're constantly telling us things we don't want to hear. And mm-hmm. I point to examples, friends, my wife, mm-hmm. you know, I've come, as I've matured, I've come to realize these people love me and they love me deeper than anyone else. And one of the things, and one of the ways they love me is by speaking the truth to me. Mm. And so, so, so you got to dispel the lies, tell the truth on, on an issue like that. You know, we're born this way. Mm. Um, By the way, even if there were a genetic component to homosexuality, that wouldn't justify it because we're all born with an orientation toward bad behavior anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we are bent toward evil. That's part of depravity. So even if one were to find this genetic connection, that wouldn't exonerate the behavior any more than if you had a genetic uh, disposition to anger, it would make gay bashing. Okay. Exactly. Right? And that's a, that would be a second part of the yeah. argument. And so I think we, we respond with, with logic. And, and now I think a lot of young people who have not been taught to think carefully who unfortunately are ruled by their emotions. There's not, there's not a whole lot they can say to that. So sometimes they just get mad. Mm. And I think when we, when we're dealing with this issue, mm. number one, they're ruled by their feelings. And then number two, they, they have a personal investment in this. So their friend is gay. They're right. maybe a, a, a parent, right. you know, has come out or a, a family member an aunt and uncle, a cousin. So there's some personal investment. And so we actually, ought to be prepared that they're still, they're still going to get upset. Even if I present this logical case and I've got all the data on my side, the first reaction that they, they still get upset with you, mm. but you, you can't base the, you, you can't measure the effectiveness of that just on their immediate response. Cause I've had kids come back to me and say, I, I get ticked off at you when you said these things, but I see what you're saying. And I, mm. you know, I understand now and they, they got to get over some of that maybe emoting at first. Mm. And they got to, and then you help them navigate. Okay. What do I do? My cousin's gay. I love my cousin. We have a great relationship. We've grown up together. Mm. Well, what do I do? You mm. know, and give them some practical ways to navigate that. Uh, and you know, and so, you know, you get the uh, objection of, well, this, you know, when I talk about the, the rates of suicide, mm-hmm. depression, anxiety, self-harm, all mm. that in the gay community, people say, well, that's the discrimination of the culture. Mm. You know, and so you got to dispel that one. That's yeah. a big one. Yeah, you point out that the places that have had, that have celebrated homosexuality for so long still have the problems. That's right. It the most gay-friendly yeah. countries. Yeah. Like, 
England, New Zealand, Norway, the yeah, Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. The Netherlands, uh, the Dutch parliament, they, they approved gay marriage like in 2001. Yeah. And still you find the same right. higher rates of depression and anxiety. Uh, Brett, tell people where they can learn more about you and what you're doing. Yeah, go to maventruth.com mm-hmm. and uh, find out more about uh, our passion, our vision for young people mm-hmm. and our passion for the people who are discipling young people. So we are trying to equip parents, mm. uh, educators, pastors, youth workers. I'd say another place you can find us is our Maven podcast. And that's okay. where we're really trying to help equip that second group, the disciples, All right. the stakeholders and young people. We're trying to equip them with the truth. Check out the Maven podcast and also maventruth.com. Maventruth.com. Great being with you, friend. That's Brett Kunkel. I'm Frank Turek. We will hopefully, Lord willing, see you here next week. God bless.